I'd like to say a few words tonight <clears throat> about an old teaching story which I mentioned earlier in the weekend for those of you who were here. Having to do with uh, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. I'll go into it in a moment. While waiting for the uh, time to come for the talk tonight, I had three different subjects that seemed appropriate, and I really wasn't sure which one. They were uh, very upbeat subjects. One was death, the other was impermanence, and the third was suffering. And so I was not sure which of these would be most appropriate, and then uh, some divine teaching came through. Can you see this coming up my eye right now? There's half of my face, the sun is right on my left eye and left cheek. I don't know if you can see it. At any rate, I took a nice shower and I was all cool and refreshed and I sat down all set to meditate and all of a sudden um, it was much hotter and more direct before. And so half my face was uh, being hit by the sunshine and the other half was perfectly relaxed and um, happy. And then uh, the mind started in. It remembered that there's no way to do something with the drapes because it remembered that Corrado tried that a couple of nights ago and that didn't work. So then I thought, perhaps I can duck behind Corrado and hide and block it off that way. So I moved a little bit and that didn't work. And I started sitting there and the left side of my face became drier and drier and less refreshed and less refreshed and the right side of the face was refreshed and happy. And it was this strange feeling of not knowing what I was. And then I remembered hot Buddha, cold Buddha. I better listen to that. Um, which is a way of, of talking about unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, or suffering. Uh, those of you who have come here a lot have probably heard that subject. And it's permissible to yawn or look up at the ceiling or any of those kinds of behaviors that are appropriate. It wouldn't be a breach of etiquette. For those of you who are new, it's central to Buddhist teaching. And so it's covered many, many times in different ways. The teaching story itself has to do with a yogi asks a teacher uh, in a monastery, I think it was China, and the monasteries, and this is still true today, are a good part of the year either very cold or very hot. Um, it's just the way it is there. Here we have a bit more control over the heat. And so <clears throat> this yogi asks the teacher, how do you sit in meditation when it's hot and when it's cold? And the teacher screamed out at him, kill hot, kill cold. And over many generations, people try to interpret what does he mean by kill hot, kill cold. And there's quite a bit been written about it. About a few hundred years later, one interpretation of it, which is the one that 
um, I find the most helpful was when asked, what do you do? How do you sit when it's hot and when it's cold? And the answer being, kill hot, kill cold. And then the question being, well, what does that mean, kill hot, kill cold? And then the teacher said, the particular teacher at that time said, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. Perhaps some of you have heard that phrase. It's kind of making the rounds now. And what does that mean, hot, cool, hot Buddha, cold Buddha? Basically, when it's hot, you sit like a Buddha and the sweat pours down off your face and the mosquitoes go by and the flies buzz around. And when it's cold, you sit like a Buddha and you shiver. Um, that's the essential meaning of it. And it's a very important teaching story because it gets at the unsatisfactoriness or dukkha that seems to be prevalent in life and also a suggestion as to what to do about it, if anything. First, a little background. The Buddha's teaching begins with the recognition of what is called dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, which is broader than suffering. It's broader than suffering in a number of ways, and one very important way, for example, to contrast it with Christianity for the moment. In Christianity, you think of suffering Christ on the cross. It's a very dramatic, obvious, uh, painful situation. There's no question about what that is. The expression, the whole situation and the story, which we all know. And of course, that would be included in dukkha. But the range goes to things that are so extraordinarily subtle that we wouldn't even think of using that term. Now, suffering is, at that point, becomes a little limiting. It's more unsatisfactoriness. Something just off. And it can be very, very subtle, extremely subtle. At any rate, what uh, was being suggested by this teaching is that To be human is to be immersed in a lot of that, a lot of of unsatisfactoriness. That's the natural state. That's the way it is on this plane over and over and over again. And there are different kinds of dukkha. We have our own kind in this nuclear age. But it's always been that way. If you read history, it's obvious different forms, different shapes, different weapons, different diseases. But it seems to be constant. And so the starting point is this recognition that all of us human beings have this in common, without exception, all creatures really, all sentient beings. But let's limit it to humans for the moment. Birth. Aging, disease, sickness, death, very obvious forms. And you get into political torture and uh, imprisonment, starvation, poverty, loneliness. Um, well, it's endless. I mean, I don't think I need to do a, a, uh, an inventory of it. It's uh, a lot of what we hear and see. All of that. Change itself. 
very often, at least this is how it's characterized, and I'm not asking you to agree with this, by the way. Uh, in fact, I, perhaps we can uh, get a dialogue going on this. And I'd certainly check yourselves. Um, is it true? What is being suggested that that's the predominant mode in life? Unsatisfactoriness. Maybe the Buddha was depressed, you know, and projected it all onto us. And now we carry his unresolved baggage. You know, it's really wonderful. It's, a, we're, it's paradise here. What he's saying is that even when it does seem to be paradise, it isn't. Because inevitably it changes. So, we're comfortable, we're pleasant, cool, it gets hot. Then it gets too hot, so we try to get cool. People love us, and then they change their mind. We're healthy, and then we get sick. We enjoy health. We enjoy love. We enjoy a good meal, and it's over. And so there are many, many examples of how things which, uh, at first glance, seem to be wonderful, but turn out to change and become the opposite. Friendships turn into hatreds. Relationships that start off in a very romantic way end up sometimes with a lot of hurt. And then you get into even more uh, subtle aspects of the unsatisfactoriness having to do with our human condition, the uh, the fact that everything seems unstable. There's nothing... We're very fragile. All of us. That is, our condition, our existential condition is such that we know we're going to die, for example, each one of us, but we don't know when. And there's a feeling of what does it mean to be a human being and perhaps not solving that. Now, from the point of view of the Buddhist teaching, which is, has to be understood as coming from the point of view of total enlightenment, that is, somebody who is completely free of suffering, and that is what the claim is made, that claim is made. There's a lot of references and pointing to dukkha, as well as joyful states, by the way. As an aside, uh, I think that the modern, if you read a lot of the original teachings of the Buddha, uh, the sutras, a lot of the dialogues of the Buddha, there's clearly a pointing to the many ways in which life is unsatisfactory, but there's also a lot of time and attention given to joy and bliss and peace and enlightenment. It's a rather balanced picture. Some of the modern commentators and commentaries, by modern meaning a few hundred years, seem to have landed on one side of the teaching, in other words, the dukkha side, a little bit too much. That's just my own feeling. And sometimes that conveys uh, to people who don't know much about Buddha Dharma that it's a very pessimistic teaching. My own sense it's not pessimistic or optimistic, but really, at least to begin with, realistic. It's trying to characterize uh, as well as character- characterizations can uh, something basic in the nature of being alive. At any rate, from the point of view of somebody who has transcended this, and the Buddha himself was often referred to as the all-smiling one. I don't know, I wasn't there, but it's reported that he was smiling, calm, joyful, compassionate. There was a radiant, lovely being. And so, 
a deeper meaning of the statement. It's not saying that there aren't all kinds of happiness in this life. Um, <clears throat> you know, we all know many of them. Just enjoyments or pleasures. But what he's saying is from the point of view of absolute truth, from that standpoint, even that which we think is wonderful is limited. Even the best that we can come up with in terms of relationships, meals, uh, whatever it is that, that serves that purpose f- for us. <coughs> it's saying from the point of view of absolute truth, in other words, it's a different benchmark. It's not, se- it's not denying that there are wonderful things going on on the planet, but it's saying that even those, uh, when seen from the relative place of enlightenment or total enlightenment, take on a different quality, different value. It's a little bit, uh, this is a, just an analogy, it's not meant to be taken literally. Growing up in New York City, I thought the rush hour was normal. You know, in other words, I would travel back and forth to school on a train with, you know, people sitting on my head and uh, on a hot summer train trying to read, studying, uh, packed in like a sardine. I, I didn't like it, but I thought that was the way things were. And then a few years later, I wound up in um, New Jersey somewhere on a train there. And, you know, there were empty seats and uh, space took out of the window. I couldn't believe it. At that point, it became very difficult to sit in a train in New York City. Suddenly I had a glimpse, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. The tremendous um, emphasis in Dharma teachings on unsatisfactoriness in life really has one main motive, and that is to strengthen our intention to go beyond it, to really reinforce our intention, perhaps to arouse it in the first place, and to provide us with reinforcement to to really want to go beyond it. Now, the beyond it, that is to transcend suffering. It's not unique to Buddhism. All the great spiritual traditions come upon it in their own way. Um, If you come from a tradition or know of traditions which talk about God-realization, perhaps they're not talking about the negative side so much, that is, letting go of the suffering, more talking about the end, It's the same. In other words, the Buddhist approach is the letting go of the suffering. And what's implied, and certainly stated quite dramatically, is that as that falls away, what comes in its place, or what remains, is the joy and the bliss of fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment. The approach taken, and that's where I think it's relevant for our retreat, and hot Buddha, cold Buddha, is a rather, it seems to me, commonsensical idea that, well, first of all, is it true? Is there really a lot of unsatisfactoriness in life? And if it is, the approach taken is that by knowing it, by bringing awareness to these situations, it is possible to release ourselves from suffering. So it is, from that point of view, it depicts our situation in a a rather painful way. And perhaps we don't like to hear our life characterized this way, life on the planet. 
But it's not the final story. In other words, what it's saying is, if you can, the way I hear it, a phrase that helps me is, if you can say hello to the suffering, in other words, if you can open yourself to it, then it's possible to say goodbye, but not until then. That is, hello precedes goodbye. I learned this in a somewhat different context. When I was growing up, we lived near many of my parents' aunts, my parents' sisters and brothers. And I liked most of them because they were affectionate and warm and gave me things to eat and made me laugh. But I have to apologize to her. Aunt Clara. Whenever I knew she was coming over, I just wanted to immediately go to the playground. Even if I didn't want to go, I wanted to go. And my mother would always say, just stay a few minutes and all you have to do is just say hello to her. And if you just stay, say hello and then just stay around for a couple of minutes, then say goodbye and then it's fine. Then you can go to the playground. So I have many memories of impatiently waiting for Aunt Clara to come over so that I could say hello, so that I could say goodbye, and then I can run off to the playground and be free of it all. But the logic, I think, is the same here. And uh, today, during uh, interviews, so many different kinds of issues coming up for all of us. One of the main themes, I think the main one, was there's something in my sitting or something that's coming up in the retreat. I don't like it. I wish it were not here. Do you know something to tell me so it won't be here? And I don't, except be with it. In other words, say hello to it, get to know it, approach it, face it, acknowledge it, words like that, and saying it perhaps in many different ways. And our impulse is to escape from it, deny it, smooth it over, repress it, all kinds of things. But it doesn't seem to be natural, in quotes, for us to turn our attention to it, gently but decisively. And that's, that's the medicine. That's what's being suggested. It's not just to, to uh, have an orgy of suffering. I mean, that, to just come to a retreat so that we can just... In other words, a kind of sadomasochistic uh, ser- um, carnival here. You know, with all of us helping each other do it. Uh, unsatisfactoriness is brought up well, let's find out. Let's see if it's true. Maybe I'm just talking to myself in some isolated, uh, I don't know, strange world that has nothing to do with your world. Let's start at really in an innocent way. And just for a moment, pause and see if you can think of anything today that qualifies as unsatisfactory, as dukkha. I gave you mine. I mean, there was more, of course, but just the light coming in. I was all set to be happy and fresh sitting here in my nice little posture. And what do I get but the light in my eye? And then annoyance with that. And then working to wriggle out of it until finally settling down and seeing that I had no choice and just allow it to be what it was. And it wasn't so bad. And then it became not even a problem. It's just one half of my had had light and the other didn't, that's all. Anyone have something? I love the woods in the back. Yeah. Except the bow for it so gentle. And 
I struggle with that for a little bit today. I until I realize though if I want the woods. <laughs> you realize what? If I want the woods. You have to get the bugs too. The woods. <laughs> uh, and uh, unlike you, I had a choice. I could leave the woods, the, the forest, the U.S. forest. And uh, at the point that I realized I wanted to stay there because I really loved the, the gentle breeze and, and the calm, it did become. It, it became a little easier. The bugs became less. <laughs> Did you, uh, okay, so in other words, you more or less uh, accepted the situation? I mean, we're open to, this is what, the way it is. Yes. Anyone else? <coughs> Headaches. You had a headache? Well, I used to have migraines. And uh, uh, the pain would reach such a level that, that the only thing that I could do was to sit and meditate that. I could not lay down. I couldn't do anything. I had to, to sit up erect and be with the pain. Did that happen today? No. Oh, I, what I... I today. What? Oh, today. Yeah, can, can you think of, of anything that happened? Think of something small. We could use really trivial, but still qualifies as unsatisfactoriness. I mean, if there isn't, then there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a nice day. What? Oh, uh, yeah, I went in the kitchen tonight to check and see what was for tea. And uh, they, there was, I don't know if you know what the, the late night tea consists of. It's the, the vegetables, you know, the peelings from the vegetables, and they, they stew it. Okay. And, I, and there was just that. There was no miso. There. And the, uh, the old stuff was still there. And I was like, uh, oh, Shucks, uh, <coughs> you know, I got, got angry that I had to, you know, it was no big thing, but just the reaction of, you know, uh, I have to do it. So I just whipped out the miso, made a little, so it's cooking in there, but I could see the angry in there. Okay, so there was a, a few seconds where that, where there was something happening. Yeah. Yeah. Can anyone get even more trivial than that? Real small stuff. Right now. You should have come two nights ago. That was the night we were on food. But it's all right. It's the same talk every night. We just dress it up a little bit differently. Even more trivial than that. I mean, something really, yeah. That's it. Your band-aid is too tight? Exactly. Can we even go deeper than that? Well, that's I mean more trivial. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Then go. Then go deeper. That's fine too. See, it's the whole range. What's the Has any of that come up today? I would say it's always with me to some degree, yes. Anyone else? 
want to throw something into the hopper. Yeah, I just don't like the uh, my physical sense of myself right now. It doesn't suit me. It's not quite in balance the way I would like it to be. <laughs> Does it have an image as well? No, it's just an immediate yeah. feeling. You yeah. Know. Yeah, existentially, things yeah. are no good. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I was. L- yeah, they never were. Okay. The reason I was laughing, Vicky, not at you, is just it reminded me of something that someone reported to this question uh, in a different group, different context. If I can remember it, it had to do with they ate a little bit too much, but that wasn't it. And so as they were walking, they felt their clothes were slightly too tight at some part of the body, but that wasn't it. <laughs> what it was was because their, clo- their body was rubbing up against their clothes just a little bit more than it usually did, it stimulated a self-image of the person being fat. And and the self-image became oppressive, all produced by being just slightly, and that was probably from childhood and all the rest of it. Maybe what's being said is it's never enough. No matter what it is, and we keep searching, it's never enough. Okay. The approach taken in this practice, and this is where I feel it becomes interesting, or as I didn't bring the subject up uh, just to make things worse than they already are or may be, but rather quite the contrary. It's... We, this is our condition. We all have these difficulties. And if you can understand it, it could be something like your shirt collar rubbing up against your neck, which as mine was just now, and there's a slight itch, which you don't want to be there. Now, it's not enough to, to make a big thing out of, but it was there for a split second. Or it could be a uh, food ending that you like. It's delicious, and then suddenly it's gone. Or perhaps... The bell rings, but just slightly too loud, or maybe not loud enough, or the retreat is ending too soon, or not soon enough. Or now, what I'm suggesting is, from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep, this process is happening. Is it? I mean, do you think that's a, a an extravagant statement? Is anyone seriously? It's not. This is not to to make people. Uh, uh, convert to an ideology that life is dukkha. It's more to point to exploration. I, is it helpful for us to have this kind of a, a statement? The statement is putting on the agenda, saying that this may be true in our life, and then it's followed by the suggestion that we learn how to pay attention to it, bring full awareness to it, and that if we can do that, perhaps there's some of the alchemy that Carrado referred to the other evening that exactly those things which bother us uh, become the ground out of which something else happens, transformation. And so a large part of this retreat is learning how to do that. 
Or as often the questions are, I had a good sitting or I had a bad sitting, more that. And how do I get a good sitting? And how do I not have certain experiences that I'm having? How do I avoid them or make sure that they don't come back again? Or if they do come back again, what do I do to get rid of them? And the teaching in many different ways is suggesting let it be. Observe it. Now, it isn't um, a kind of passive... It's not being uh, simple-minded. We're learning how to be simple but not simple-minded. For example, even with the hot Buddha, cold Buddha, if it were possible to, let's say, get air conditioning or for the room to be warmed, you do that. Or if it were possible to have more clothes or less clothes or to get a cold drink to cool you down or to get a hot drink to heat you up. It's not saying to just grimly stay in any adverse conditions. But what it is saying is if that turns out to be your condition, that is, if you're sitting here and you feel slightly uh, too full from overeating or slightly this, that, or the other, and you've decided to stay here, or if there's no choice. In many situations in life, there's no choice. And so what is being suggested is to enter at that point with awareness. That's when it's hot Buddha, cold Buddha. It's not a suggesting some kind of fatalism or futility to just give up and uh, be destroyed by the forces. It's to live intelligently. But very often, there's a limit to what we can do or the thing is already happening. And the teaching is helping us learn what to do when it happens. And all it is is to let it be. That is to meet it with great care and sensitivity and to learn from it. Because in many cases... And try this. The next time you find yourself suffering, let's say, around here, ask yourself about it. Just for a moment. Just pause. And how did this happen? Why am I suffering right now? And very often, I'm not saying all all the time, very often you can see how it was put together. Perhaps you had an expectation of a sitting. You had a very serene sitting. And then there's walking and then you can't wait to get back to the cushion. And you sit down and the mind is all over the place. And you suffer. You find yourself being unhappy. If you can at that moment see that the unhappiness has a great deal to do with the expectation that you had. That the sitting should be a certain way. And then it turned out that it wasn't. And that those conditions were necessary to produce the unhappiness in you. Whereas if we come to the cushion open not knowing, really not knowing, because perhaps we've uh, learned that we don't have control. We don't know, literally, what's going to happen from one moment to the next, off or on the cushion. When we sit down, if there's restlessness in the mind, it's a lot different than if there's restlessness which had as a background the expectation that it was going to be peace or bliss. Or there's a lawfulness going on. And as we start to pay attention as to how... Step number one is to be able to discern that we are unhappy, which is a major step. Very often people are invested in not characterizing themselves as being unhappy. And so there's a lot of emotional resistance to this teaching. Because if we were to fully entertain the possibility of its truth, it would point to looking at our lives which we might not like to do because 
of the pain and also perhaps because it would be very inconvenient. It might suggest that we would have to change our lives a lot. And so very often the subject is skipped and what we do is gloss over it. We set up fanciful futures. The future is always fine because it hasn't happened yet or as we can't possibly um, blow it because it hasn't happened. And so we live in the future a lot. Or we have romanticized memories of the good old days. Okay, so what is being suggested here is step number one is can you just pay attention to see that it's there? That's a giant step, just to know that it's there. And then the discerning mind is brought to it. All the things we're developing on the breath, on walking, on all day long. Can you bring a gentle but decisive attention to where you find yourself? And sometimes in that looking, there's also discovery of how you created that moment. What, it had, what had to happen for that moment to be what it was? The ingredients, the conditions, the causes and conditions that had to collaborate for you to be unhappy in that moment. And even if it's over or if it's too late, sometimes just a glimpse of that in retrospect, just seeing how you put it together, uh, allows us the possibility of doing it less in the future or catching it as it comes up earlier on before it's taken root. Okay, now some of the practice that we're doing like following the breath is designed to generate a certain amount of joy and peace. Has anyone tasted a little of that in the time that you've been here? From, let's say, from the breath or whatever? You can raise your hand if you have. Yeah. Is your samadhi that strong or is it just what? I mean, just, in other words, um, let me make a suggestion. It's been very quiet. And of course, we've been encouraging that. We don't talk much. We sit up here to encourage you to sit. It's nonverbal teaching a lot. So we try to make every sitting, one or both of us is here at every sitting, if you've noticed. It's not accidental. That's the teaching. Or as we're, we're trying to show that, we don't talk a lot. And that protects the silence, except when there are interviews and Dharma talks. But also what we're trying to learn is to not get attached. In other words, when it's quiet time, to be quiet. But when it's talk time, to let go of, let's say, the quiet, which I know we all cherish, or at least sometimes we do, to let go of it and enter into the next situation, which is, at this point, talking and listening. So it provides us with a challenge of learning how to make our meditation practice more pliable, more alive, more flexible. If you get locked into, I'm a yogi, and think that that's what it is, that's a bit of a rigid way to use the practice. And then it prevents us from using the situations that come up fully. Does everyone, and I understand to do that means you have to shift gears from perhaps settling in being very laid back at this moment in the room because we're doing a lot of things that contribute to that. To let go of that, any clinging that you might see, and to bring energy of a more social kind together. 
It can be learned. In other words, the more we try to do it, the more we can do that. And then when the talk is over, to let go of that. By the way, that's a large part of what comes out of the teaching in regard to the, to the suffering. Or as we haven't really gotten into the cause, tonight I mainly just want to suggest that it's there, that there's a lot of unsatisfactoriness, and that the beginning point is to acknowledge it, to look at it, and to learn from it. And as you start to do that, what you may learn is that it, it comes about through attachment, through holding on. So much as I see it, of what we're trying to learn is non-attachment. It's not detachment. In other words, detachment at times has a connotation of sort of pulling away from life and just watching it all go by, sort of a, a wallflower, if that, if that term is still used, at parties, watching everyone dance around and eat the, and you're just backed off watching it. So you, you can't get hurt. You're also not in it and not having much fun. Non-attachment, which is what is being suggested, is to learn how to live fully in the moment. And if the moment provides us with stillness or with uh, an enjoyable companion or with a good meal, great, then to enjoy that. And when we don't have that, to be able to do without it. And in order to learn to live that way, in order to a life of non-attachment, meaning you can do the things of life, that isn't what causes the suffering. It's the clinging that does. It's a practice in itself, and we have to begin right now, learning how to do each thing at its right time and place wholeheartedly and see when it's time to let go of it. And so, perhaps this is another example of it, a kind of microscopic, everything is set here for us to all just be quiet, lay back, And what I'm suggesting is, can we come out of that a little bit? Can you meet me in terms of talk and answer? Okay, it's an invitation. See if it's true in you and see if there's some learning that's possible. Um, If it's possible simply by seeing the state that you're in, to to be freer of it, free enough of it to be able to uh, be a little bit more outgoing and social. And then when the talk ends, go right to the walking wholeheartedly, and so forth, all through the day. That's a, that's a lot of what we're suggesting. Keeping the mind attentive from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep, learning how to do that. Okay, I think that I've covered as much as um, I'd like to regarding this, and would be interested in hearing if there are anything on your mind, questions or comments. Mm-hmm. Um, aren't there certain inevitable kinds of suffering which would still take place? For example, someone you love dies, so you're sad. Mm-hmm. Or um, Reagan does something that you don't like, so you get angry. I mean, uh, you're not talking about transcending in that sense, or are you? Uh, well, okay, it's a, that's a good question, and it's a, a complex one. Uh, I'm talking to where we are. Um, well, even we are, you know, it's possible to get into a state of concentration. There's no Reagan. I mean, there's no nothing, right? There's just a good feeling. And then suddenly you come out of it and there's Reagan again. Um, what I'm talking about more is 
let's say you do lose somebody that you care about. It's not saying don't be sad or don't mourn. In fact, it's saying wholeheartedly mourn. If that's what's happening, then fully mourn and so that you're, you go through it and, and then it's over and then you can be joyful again. The suffering would come in the, the holding, let's say denying that the person has died or is not there. That kind of pain. It's, this is not a Hollywood ending type teaching, you know, just suggesting that follow your breath and we all walk out of here just radiant. And, um, what it's, but even there, you can see there is a moment of freedom or um, you have an attachment to a certain kind of, to getting, having, in quotes, a good sitting. You come to the cushion. The expectation is there. There's the beginnings of pain emotional pain, when the sitting starts to be kind of bumpy. Awareness sees that. It falls away and there's a certain joy again. It's more, in other words, what I'm talking about is within range for all of us. We don't have to wait for uh, anatara samyak sambodhi, total unequivocal enlightenment. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, However, in this, uh, I know from reports, I don't know it from my own experience, Consciousness can become so vast. I know it to some degree. That is relative to my own, wherever my starting point is, which is not to say that it's beyond yours or I don't know where it is relative to yours, but I know where it is relative to mine. When the mind becomes more vast, when the space that we live in becomes more vast, the disappointments of life, the things that don't go our way, the the things that are taken away from us, the things that are given to us that we don't want, Uh, don't have quite the potency that they do when the mind is very small, when the consciousness is shrunken. And an ancient image that uh, I find very helpful, perhaps will help you, and this is how two people can experience the same thing rather differently, is if you have, let's say you take this, and we put, um, let's say, a tablespoonful of salt and fill it up with water, mix it up, If you would drink it, it would be very salty and you probably wouldn't want to drink it. If we took that same tablespoonful of salt and let's say we had a big swimming pool and put it into the swimming pool, you wouldn't taste the salt. It would be fine. You could drink it. It's it's just pointing to it. Some of you have um, read the work of uh, Maharaj, a, a very great yogi, in a book called I Am That, where he's asked questions like this and he said, you know, don't you get hungry? Don't you have... He said, sure, hunger comes up on the horizon of my consciousness. But for you, it's like everything. You know, it makes or breaks your day. Where to me, it's just a little thing that's come up on the horizon. It's a signal. It's time to eat. It doesn't have that uh, driven quality, compulsive quality. See, we're not trying to legislate how to behave. At least I'm not. I'm not saying don't mourn or go through life with a big smile. Uh, all I'm saying is, if suffering turns up, then work with it and bring awareness to it. Maybe this will help. It's a personal example. Uh, some years ago at a monastery in Korea, a nun died uh, who was uh, an elderly nun, very beloved there. And there was a funeral and uh, the body was burned. And sitting next to me was a a very well-known Korean Zen master, and he started sobbing. And I think I asked, I felt the way you did. I mean, I was wondering, 
I don't know how you felt, but anyway, what, I was a little bit disturbed by that because I thought he was a great Zen master. So the next day I went to an interview and questioned him about that. Um, I felt, uh, aren't you beyond that? You're a Zen master. And I didn't quite ask it that directly, but I was trying to get at it. It was uncomfortable for me. I mean, everyone does that. You're like everyone else. I mean, <laughs> someone dies, you cry. So what am I practicing Zen for? And he just roared with laughter. He just thought uh, that my understanding of Zen was very stilted and asked me if I'd been reading a lot of American books about it, which, of course, I had. Uh, What he said was uh, that this woman was an old and dear friend. They had practiced Dharma together for a long time, many years. And he was going to miss her. And so she died and he mourned and he he went through it. It was this holy, wholeheartedly unholy mourning. So it's not a kind of a simple-minded way of living. It has subtlety to it. There's no recipe. It it has to do with totally mourning. In other words, if there's holding back, then it isn't totally mourning, so it's going to persist. And that, how do you know if you're doing that? Sensitivity. Your friends will tell you. Now, sometimes your friends will rush you because they don't want to be made uncomfortable by your mourning. Because we don't want to be around unhappy people. Or, okay, someone died, fine, one day, two days. Okay, let's now be chipper again. But I think, um, as in all these cases, you're the ultimate knower. And so it would call for real care and sensitivity if there's really a full acceptance of the fact that the person has died. Now, there may be blocks to that. And then, then... one works with those blocks. One brings awareness to... You can feel the mind denying it. I'd like to say a few words tonight about <clears throat> free attention. This will, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the third stage in the meditation instructions for those of you who started out Friday night. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, if we've been moving, and some of you came Sunday, many of you, so. We've been leading up to this. Uh, Not that you have to do this for the remainder of the retreat, or this is the uh, quintessence of meditation, although some feel it is. Probably my own bias is that it is. But to give you a taste of it, and 
then for you to work as you see fit. Free attention is sometimes called choiceless awareness, comprehensive attention, all-inclusive attention, just sitting. pure witnessing. To go back over what we've been doing so we have a context for what uh, we'll develop tonight. If you recall, we started off with the breath. We picked one thing out of all the possibilities in the universe, just the breath. And Whenever attention moved from the breath, we would very gently come back to the breath. Is that familiar? (laughs) If it isn't, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble too. So we had one object and we kept coming back to it. And then we opened the field of attention up to allow for the possibility that attention would move from that object, which, as we know, it does. And then what attention moves to itself becomes the object of meditation. So that if your mind leaves the breath and goes to some part of the body that is um, vivid, painful, that isn't a disruption as it was with the first set of instructions. That isn't a distraction. It's just the next meditation object. It's not inferior or superior to the breath. And if you're having a hard time with that, getting lost in it, you go back to the breath a little bit earlier. If not, stay with it during the life of that next object, as long as it's stronger than the breath, till it leaves. In both of these, we're learning some important things, important qualities are being developed. One is just to be able to place our attention someplace and to keep it there. Also, in keeping it there, noticing what's happening, watching carefully as we've been able to place our attention on the breath or another object. And then we're also able to discern increasingly more refinement in the behavior of what's going on and where our attention is. The other thing that we're learning is the beginnings of the art of allowing, of non-doing, non-interfering. And that's a very profound and important one, one approach to Dharma that's uh, central. And that's what we'll be getting into uh, in, this next, in the next few moments. That meant, in terms of the breath, allowing the breath to go its own way. If you recall, we're not trying to even out the breath or smooth it out, make it longer or shorter, less bumpy, nothing. We just let the breath do all the work, not control it. And perhaps from time to time you see that in spite of that, we do control the breath. In fact, as your practice deepens, you start to see that what you thought was not controlling the breath was. We're self-conscious, we're goal-oriented, we want to become super-duper meditators. And so we're helping the, the breath along, even though it needs no help. 
But we're beginning to learn to just allow, to just let the breath follow its own nature. And it's a very important lesson. In order to do that, it means we have to let go of perhaps a lifetime of calculation, scheming, engineering, orchestration, manipulation, goal-directedness, and words like that. In other words, there's a controller. Something that is controlling something in order to get somewhere. And that controller, of course, has the name me, I. You could call it ego, if you like. Or self-cherishing. So we've been doing that for a few days. What haven't we been learning in doing that? See, as long as we have a fixed object, which we start with and come back to, like the breath, and a set of uh, rather explicit instructions, it's pretty straightforward. It could be like laboratory instructions or to some degree putting together an erector set or equipment that you buy in a a shop. Follow the breath, mind wanders, come back. Pretty straightforward. But there's controlling going on because we have to remember that the breath is really important. We have to keep coming back to it. There are a lot of issues around that. And so the center, a center known as me, is kept strong in that approach. Now, even that approach, if you persistently go through it, will cut through the center, I think. What we're moving to is, I feel, more in the direction of letting go of the center, of decentralizing the controlling faculty, namely me, which is the meditator. And the meditator is the biggest problem in meditation. If it weren't for the meditator, there would be some meditation happening here. And it's hard to, maybe impossible, to avoid that step because we're all encouraged to be meditators. The chief one is right in back of me, up there. Perfect posture. He never moves, to my knowledge. Never does walking meditation, doesn't go to eat, doesn't even go to the bathroom. 24 hours a day, right there. And we're all in our small way trying to approximate that. It's a self-consciousness, which is no different than any other form of self-consciousness that we've had in our attempts to improve ourselves, to become. It's ambition. We could call it spiritual, we could call it dharmic, but there is still that self-centered entity that is striving to get somewhere. Uh, And at the beginning, it's quite strong. And it's very, uh, as you know, if you're coming into interviews, interested in signs that you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong or it's a good meditation or a bad meditation or what does this lead to anyway and why am I here? So there's a lot of concern and calculation and a need for encouragement and to be reminded or to be pointed out to in the first place, why are we here? What do you get out of it? 
And so that dynamic is alive as long as you have a specific object to come back to. It's a home. And that's, of course, the power of it. That's the beauty of it. The breath is recurrent. It's always going on. And it's a very wonderful, natural home. And what we're moving into next is to develop a homeless home, which is another way of saying to be at home wherever we are. In other words, if the only way we can be at home is by paying attention to the breath, that seems to be rather limiting in life, running around following our breath all the time. Because there's a lot going on in life. And it would be nice if we could just be at home wherever we find ourselves. Or when we're thrown out of our home, there we are, home again. In other words, we can't be thrown out of a home because everything is home. This homeless home. In the next stage of the meditation instructions, I feel it becomes less technique It still has a, a, a practice uh, feel to it, and it's still, particularly if you're hearing it for the first time, or even for the hundredth time, it may still have uh, sound like it's a technique. And yet, more and more as you do it, and I've been doing it for years, it becomes less and less of a technique and more of a, it's more artful. Or I don't know what it is, I don't have words for it, but uh, what we're going to be doing in a few moments is to let go of the breath and simply to sit with no agenda no particular object to attend to. So we've been with the breath now, some of you, for a week. And in a few moments, I'm going to suggest it's all right. Just sit still and pay attention to what's happening. And the breath is no better or worse than anything else. It's just the breath. And what will we attend to then? Well, I don't know. Whatever life provides in the next moment. Did anyone feel any anxiety at that? You mean I can't hold on to the breath? I've just been learning how to... Anyone feel a little nervousness with that? Okay, if you do, that would be what you would pay attention to. There is the fact that, um, my God, there's no breath to hang on to. Where do I go? I mean, what do I look at? What do I listen to? Well, you listen to that, because that's what's happening. So it's an extension of what we've been learning... But only now, we're throwing away, in a sense, we're throwing away the water wings or the the training wheels on a two-wheeler bicycle, which was the breath, a kind of support, something that we can stabilize our attention with. And no, it's recurrent. We can always come back to it. And it's, it's wonderful that we have it. And we will be using it again a lot. It's not that we're through with it or we've outgrown it. It's just that I would like for us to get a taste of something else and then each person at their own pace can attempt to use this approach. Why call it free attention? Because there are no rules. Your mind is free. The only rule is to pay attention to what's happening now, in this moment. Stick to the present. Bring awareness, which we've been developing. It's not different. But now bring it to what is most vivid, what's most distinct, whatever is most compelling. And you don't have to figure that out. Or as we'll be told that. I mean, each moment tells you what it is. Now, 
for that to happen, and here's where something uh, something different begins to accompany these instructions, at least for some people. If it's not for you, don't worry about it. You, it may or may not happen. It comes very close to certain um, attitude that is expressed in, in uh, many religions, having to do with surrender, also having to do with faith. It can. Okay, the instructions in a few moments will be simple enough. It will be to just sit and to pay attention to whatever is there. It will also be suggested that to help you get a feeling for it, you not reach out for anything. Because what is it you would be reaching out? That means you have some opinion, some view as something is more important than something else. So if anything is, is to be attended to, let it make the first move. Let it tell you. So you become like a photographic plate. Totally 100% receptive. No fear about there being a shortage of objects or experience or consciousness. Or Don't worry about it. Let life tell you what to know. Because it will, from moment to moment. So we're, we're beginning to develop a kind of mind that is listening, listening with your whole heart and your whole body, but not listening to anything in particular, not listening for anything in particular. It's a kind of waiting, but it's a waiting without waiting. In other words, what are we waiting for? Nothing in particular. We're just waiting. We're just receiving. We're just right there. Now, Whenever anyone gives instructions about this non-doing or just sitting, you can't help but color it. And I'll just give you a sense of that. Uh, I've gotten different versions of these instructions, and I have my own. And each one will probably influence your mind somewhat. But if we know that, then perhaps it can become closer to just you letting go, surrendering to each moment. I've gotten these instructions in... um, in one context, one monastic context, where an analogy was used, and it was a couple of them. One was, it's as if you're in a forest and there's somebody out to kill you. You don't know where this person is. They might be behind you, to the right or left, or they might be in front of you. And you're making your way through the forest with total attention, Panoramic, all-inclusive attention. Because any sound might be a sign that that person is coming to kill you. So do you see, it's not located on a particular object. It's not the breath or anything else, that mantra. It's just attention, and it has no locus. There's no inside, there's no outside. You're attending to yourself. There's no, there's no nothing. You're just, it's just attention. But if you notice, it's putting a, it has a certain angle, a certain attitude accompanying it. Somebody's out to kill you and is danger, and that's why you're attending. That has a certain consequence for the mind. In that same monastery, the way in which uh, we did this practice, you would sit for only a half an hour, and tremendously intense. In other words, you, it was said to us, 
if you weren't wringing wet with sweat and it had nothing to do with the season, at the end of that half hour, you weren't really doing it. So that was somewhat different than what I'm suggesting. It's sort of uh, danger and full attention to danger with every ounce of attentiveness you could have, like a crisis, like your life is at stake. And you can only sustain that for a short period of time. That's one way. Another way, uh, similar, an image used is that you're in a duel and you're facing your enemy and you're totally attentive to your enemy, but you also hear all the sounds and you see the, uh, other, the people watching the duel. But if you move for a second, you could get killed. Okay, those are one kind. There's another approach which is a little softer, a lot softer, and that ha- that's the faith, a faith model. And the instructions might be something like, we're all Buddhas right now. Each one of us has Buddha nature. Each one of us right at this moment is as perfect as we'll ever be. Our original nature is here, right in this hall. So just relax. Just sit and know that there's no place to, to go to. You're already enlightened. Each one of us is already enlightened. Now, the mind doesn't know that. So the mind is going to behave as if feverishly, you know, trying to get this and get that and reassure itself and worry about if it's doing right and all the things that minds do. And you just sit and relax and hear this poor misguided mind that doesn't know that it's enlightened go nuts, you know, trying to get something that it doesn't need because you already have it. And so if you have deep faith, whether it's in the Buddha or a particular teacher or you might just have it. Who knows where it comes from? You just, you trust, you have faith and you sit there and it can be a lot more relaxed, a lot less striving, uh, not trying to get anywhere. And sometimes it can be quite hilarious if you accept this frame of reference when you see it's really true, the mind is like a four-year-old just feverishly trying to make something of itself, get somewhere, and then worry about not doing it and pick itself up and start all over again. And you just sit in a state of total faith and relaxation watching all this unnecessary effort. You know, It can be quite hilarious and can take you deep. Now. If you have deep and natural faith, that might be good. Many of us don't. The modern world is not, at this point, uh, famous for authentic spiritual faith. And I'm not talking about certain kinds of fervor, which if you press beneath them, I don't think it's genuine faith, but just desperation or fanaticism or some kind of a, of a belief. That's not what's being suggested by the, this style of teaching. I feel closer to that myself than the first. But life has both. What I'd like to suggest as an attitude is one of um, just knowing. If we had to put it into a question, the question would be, what is this? In other words, what is happening right now? More the mind of discovery. But it's not thought. So you're sitting back and there's no, no agenda. We're not with the breath or trying to get back to the breath or trying to get anywhere. We're learning how to be where we already are. We're learning how to get from A to A. 
And the question, what is this? Just for a moment, hear it. Even say it to yourself, what is this? It's very powerful. If you ask it about anything, and I think it's powerful because we don't really know what anything is, ultimately. Maybe you do, I don't. And when you look very carefully and really are honest, what is anything? And I don't mean long verbal explanations. When you listen carefully to them, they're not fulfilling. They're just a bunch of words. And sometimes that's called don't know, or beginner's mind, or as innocence. This, what is this, can sometimes strip away a lot of the encrustations of familiarity, or as a routinization. We've been doing things uh, and been conditioned so many years, over and over and over again. We have all kinds of things are colored a certain way, and we don't see things in a fresh way. And sometimes just asking, what you thought the breath happened. Let's say the breath comes in. It's no longer privilege, remember. If it just naturally captures your attention, fine. In words, it would be, what is a breath? Again, it's not thinking. I have to speak to you in words. But it's more real interest. Real interest in what's happening. So, I'm not assuming uh, faith. I'm not assuming that you believe that you're perfect or that you have Buddha nature. Because you may not. In fact, the odds are you don't. Okay, so we're kind of moving slowly, kind of starting around the periphery and getting to this core activity of just sitting still and and doing nothing. No calculation, no scheming, no goals. Just learning the art of doing absolutely nothing with total passion and total interest. Can we do it? Why don't we try it for a few moments? It'll be short, just five or ten minutes. simply because it is there. No other reason needed. And as you begin to notice what's there, you can also see that it leaves and becomes something else in consciousness. And so now the mind, in order to carry out these instructions of just allowing whatever is there to happen with no particular direction, no motive other than the attention, becomes a kind of surrender.
perhaps surrendering any words that you might have about why you came here or why you sit. Surrender to what? To God? To Buddha nature? Those are just words. To life? Also words, but... What is at hand that we can trust, independent of our conviction, opinions, is that at this moment each one of us exists. No question about it. We just exist, each one of us, right now. And that existence continuously manifests itself. The energy keeps becoming something else from moment to moment. So we're surrendering to simply the process. To use words, the best I can do is the process of life itself of our own mind and body, allowing it to tell its own story, not necessarily in words. In fact, more and more, it will be less and less in words. And everything is welcome. Opening our heart to ourselves. No more secrets from ourselves all these many pacts that we've kept, little compartments, places where we've gotten hurt, and don't want to, we don't want to know about those places. So we keep a secret from ourself. A lot of energy tied up in those secrets. Wasted. Things that happened 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, still festering still controlling us today. Tragic. Has nothing to do with the present. And yet it reinstates itself over and over again. In allowing everything to turn up and be attended to with care and attention, in doing nothing, in having no agenda, we're providing the mind with an invitation. It's as if we just have given up trying to make ourselves over into some perfect being, trying to control the breath, get back to the breath, trying to be attentive. Very tiring trying to be a good spiritual person. And out of exhaustion, we just fall over and just sit here with straight posture, of course. And give up because the mind is ungovernable. And just sit quietly with great interest.
and let the mind and the body do all the work. The less we do, the more we come to know. When we do something like this, now with attention having no boundaries, no inside or outside, a sound perhaps a half a mile away is as welcome as an inner thought or feeling. So the inside-outside boundary starts to melt. It was made by thought in the first place. Me and you. Many of us on various spiritual paths are oriented towards universal love. How can we love universally if we don't love ourselves? How can we fully love ourselves if there are still areas that we reject that are not eligible to fully be? And so these instructions of no instructions give permission to the mind to begin to empty itself. And we resist it, we tighten up, and we become aware of that too. Everything is absorbed into the practice. In beginning to learn how to let go of control, the center that we've worked so hard to create, begins to lose its seeming solidity, becomes decentralized, 
because it doesn't make the decisions now as to what to attend to. It just allows life itself to decide. There's just attention. What is this? Wherever you are at this moment, what is this? Without words.
had a, a brief sample of, is something you can do more of during the week to come. And we can also talk about how advisable it is for you to do a lot of it or a little of it. It really depends on how settled your mind is and if you feel an affinity, if you're drawn in this direction. Just uh, another point about it so there's no uh, misunderstanding and then we can have some questions if there are any. Free attention, sometimes called choiceless awareness, It's in two senses that it's choiceless. One, in that the attention is non-judgmental. That is, we're not choosing one thing over and above another thing. Oh, I like this, I want it. I don't like this, I'll push it away. And if we find ourselves making choices, then we bring attention to that itself. And it's choiceless in the sense that there's no agenda. That is, we're just sitting, allowing whatever wants to present itself to do so. Now, strictly speaking, it isn't choiceless awareness and it isn't true free attention. How could it be where I'm telling you to do it and you're making a choice to try to be choiceless? But where are we going to start? I don't know. I haven't figured out any other way than... We're close to the edge, but the real choicelessness or the real free attention is something that ripens. And I don't know how long it will take if you have that question on your mind. That's coming from a place that's very different than the spirit of this meditation, as you can imagine. Maybe tomorrow, maybe ten years from now. When the mind settles into itself and it becomes a way of life to just live with... uh, kind of the mind of discovery, attentiveness. So we're approximating it. We're approximating a mind that is free, a mind that is not concerned with choices, at least during this sitting. And we're trying not to try, which is a contradiction. And the first time that I ever had even a glimmer of what this was about was during a sitting at a retreat much like this somewhere else. And the bell rung, so the official sitting was over. The instructions were similar to what we were doing. Of course, I was trying to do it, trying not to try or trying to just be choiceless. And I was getting a headache from so much not trying. (laughs) (laughs) And then as soon as the bell rang, of course, the official sitting meditation was over, and so I didn't have to pay attention, and suddenly it started to happen just letting it all be exactly what it was. Okay, any questions or comments? And we will, you can have, uh, we'll have more opportunity to go into it as you gain more experience with this form, if you're inclined to. I'm particularly interested in if you understand uh, the instructions or the guidelines or any reactions or comments. Please. I feel very comfortable with the idea of being choiceless. The idea of trying to follow my breath and failing to do so always was appropriate guilt. And uh, in this now, before we started to do it, I felt the apprehension of, well, my gosh, Larry is saying, go ahead, 
one more time with permission. And I, I really could hear him. But as I got into it, the rock well, that's what we're going to do. Review the old movie script again. Okay. Were you trying to do that, or is that what happened? I, I was concerned it might happen. I understand. Right, of course. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'll just sit here for 10 minutes and do the drama again. And it didn't happen. Okay, now, it, let's, let's start the movie a little earlier, you know, in the lobby. Okay? And what it includes is your anticipation about what's going to happen. Okay, so there's something, there's, there's wisdom in that. There's something to be learned from that. It didn't happen, didn't it? How often do we go through that one? But if we could back off again, there's some fine print on the contract here, which I forgot to mention. It's not a way of escaping from uh, having difficulty paying attention to the breath. In other words, see, sometimes people say, oh, I love this. This is great. Why don't we start with this? And it has a little bit of sort of um, someone let out of school at three o'clock. You know, like, I've been trying to be with the breath. Go away from the breath. Come back. Go away from the breath. Come back. And now he says, just great. Wherever you are is okay. We can just play and, and go swimming and go to the playground. And this is, uh, this is what I call meditation. <laughs> but then there's going to be, there's a test. And the test is how alert and sensitive, in other words, how discerning is there real attention in this freedom. And uh, by and large, I, everyone I've known has had to really work with both. In other words, uh, it'd be good if you, uh, if being able to attend to the breath becomes something that it's not a problem for you. And probably at that point, this will naturally be available to you. But I'm not saying don't do it, because you can also develop your attention, especially if you're attracted to it, on this. Some people, and I've seen this happen too, it's not so often, but it does happen, are so drawn to this, their natures are so drawn to just having the freedom to explore whatever is there, that they become very concentrated this way, and they develop the same things that are needed to, to be developed on the breath, at which point they can go back to the breath and they find that it's not so, so difficult after all. So it's very much an individual thing and we'll work through that in interviews and group discussions. Anyone else? Sure. I was just wondering what you meant when you said that ch- chances are that none of us are Buddhists, right? Chance, chances no, are that none of us are Buddhists? No, I didn't say that. Or, well, chances are that you aren't a Buddhist? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Does anyone know? Let's see how attentive Does anyone know what I said? Yeah. I don't know if I said nobody. Maybe I did. Uh, I doubt if any. Okay, I, I, that's not too, that's too extreme. Uh, what I meant was pretty much what you said. Uh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what I think I meant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to sit. Um, knowing that you're enlightened, you, you believe what all the texts have said, what the Buddha said, that you're already perfect. Inside, there's Buddha nature. It's there. 
To sit without assurance is a very advanced spiritual state. It's very mature. However you come to it, whether it's through years of sitting or what I saw in the Orient, that some people grow up in a very pious Buddhist family and not just the outer crust, I mean genuine. And their faith is beyond what I have, you know, it's very difficult for a Westerner to find that faith anymore. I think it, I know it still exists in the West and it has existed in much greater intensity and was more uh, abundant in the past. But right now it's not so, not so relevant and prevalent. It's a scientific age and all, so much has been undercut. Now here I don't mean faith as a, as a belief, but a deep trust, deep trust. Uh, and if you have that, fine. That's a tremendous advantage for you. In other words, you can sit and all, you know, sometimes you feel like sitting, sometimes you don't, sometimes your legs hurt, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's a beautiful, calm, peaceful sitting, sometimes it's awful. doesn't matter. You just sit. You just sit and then you walk because... The Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.